You can turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're in our study, going through our study of Romans. And it's such a uh, <clears throat> wonderful book. I, I read uh, in one commentary this past week that they said, uh, a lot of people say, oh, the, the book of Romans, especially the 8th chapter, is the best chapter in all the, the Bible. And you've got to be careful with that. And someone related it to buildings. And they said, when you make statements like that, you have to be careful. Uh, with some things, it's easy to assign one of three labels. The commentator says, <clears throat> take buildings, for instance. When it was completed in 1931, the Empire State Building in New York City was the world's tallest building at 1,250 feet. It was tall, taller, and tallest. However, It is only tall today since several buildings have surpassed it in height. The Sears Tower in Chicago is 1,453 feet tall. The World Trade Center in New York was 1,348 feet tall. One World Trade Center in New York is the fourth tallest building in the world and the tallest building in the Western Hemisphere at 1,792 feet to the tip of the sphere. The, today, the world's largest or the world's tallest building is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, uh, which we've had the privilege to be in. It's amazing. It's an amazing structure uh, at 2,717 feet. Now, there is something to say about tall, taller, and tallest. But when you come to describing a book in the Bible as the best book or it's, it's the, 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 the most inspired book, well, we don't believe that. We believe it's all inspired and it's all spoken from the inspiration of God himself. And so today we want to look at Romans chapter 8 and we're fighting to get our way through the first four verses here. Uh, last week we had kind of a full schedule with communion and missions update, so hopefully we'll get through the, the outline today. So I beg your patience with that. I remember back in 1998, Philip Yancey wrote a book, I think it was 98 or 97, around their late 90s, uh, called Disappointment with God. That was the name of the book. And what he did is he put together a book dealing with counseling sessions that he had had with young Christians. And all these young Christians were disappointed with God. Um, And they complained about various things, but they boiled all the complaints, Yancey boiled all the complaints down to three categories. And I thought it was kind of interesting. Three accusations about God. First of all, God is not fair. How many of you heard that? How many of you thought that? Okay. <laughs> We're a transparent church, so it's okay to uh, say you're unspiritual now and then. We all go there. At times, we feel like God is not fair. Secondly, Not only did they say that God is not fair, they said God is hidden. In other words, he can't be found. And then thirdly, they said God is silent. He doesn't answer prayers. And he boiled these three things down and he relates it in his book, Disappointed with God. Now, I'm sure those accusations are genuine and his answers were were good. He answered them 
uh, in, a, in a biblical way, I would say. He replies that fairness would send each and every one of us to hell. I don't think you want fairness from God. He wrote that God has unveiled himself as fully as possible in the person of the historical Jesus Christ and creation. And out of it, out of the periods of his silence, that God draws forth the precious perfume of human faith. And when I read that book, and I kind of went back and thought about it again, I just thought about its title, Disappointment with God. Um, And I was thinking, how many times have I been disappointed with God since I have been saved? Since he's begun that work in my heart when I was 19. And I began to use that to reflect on this chapter. Um, Because if you've ever dealt with disappointment in any way, this chapter has a way of pulling you out of that. Um, So I began to ask questions. Disappointment with God. How could any Christian possibly be disappointed with God? When he sent Jesus Christ to die for us so that we might escape his wrath and his condemnation for our sin. Disappointment with God? Really, when he sent his Holy Spirit to free us from our own sinful and debilitating natures and to join us to Christ and to act as a deposit of faith in our lives? Disappointment with God. Really, when he has made us his very own sons and daughters with all the privileges that come with that? Disappointment with God, really, when when he has drawn us into a great cosmic drama of redemption in which even the heavens and earth have a part? Disappointment with God, when the Spirit intercedes with us, confronting our ignorant and incompetent prayers to the good, pleasing, and acceptable will of God? Disappointment with God, really, when he has set in motion an invincible chain of saving actions, beginning with his affectionate choice of us in eternity past, proceeding through his predestination of us to be saved from sin and conform to the image of his own blessed Son, his effectual calling of us to faith in Jesus as the Savior. And not only that, but justification and then ending in glorification in which all the blessed purposes of God toward us are fulfilled. Disappointment with God? When he has fixed such a lasting love upon us that nothing in all of creation can separate us from? Disappointment? I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, What are we thinking of? Or maybe we're not thinking. Or maybe we're just thinking of ourselves. Perhaps our disappointment, if we have it, means only that we are unhappy because God has not done exactly what we wanted Him to do when we wanted Him to do it. Regardless of the fact that He has a much better plan for us, 
and is actually working it out day by day and will continue to do so until the end of time. The only sure cure for our disappointment is getting ourselves, getting our eyes off of ourselves and putting them entirely on to God who has truly done great things for us. Amen? And the best way I know to do that is to look at Romans chapter 8. And when we come to Romans chapter 8, I said the first week, if you struggle with guilt, read Romans 8. If you struggle with sin, read Romans 8. If you struggle with trials or how to pray, read Romans 8. If you're struggling with the assurance of your salvation, read Romans 8. Because we're in a series that talks about free at last. No condemnation for those in Christ. Well, what are we free from? We talked about how we're free from the penalty of sin. We're free from the power of sin. And eventually we'll be free from the presence of sin. And that's all God's doing. And that's what we have to look forward to. We're also free from judgment. We're free from defeat. We're free from discouragement. We're free from fear as believers. And last week, in our outline, we got to the first point, the reality of freedom. And verse 1 said, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we broke that down, and you can get the tape or go online and, and listen to the message online. But we talked about how we have this comprehensive nature of our freedom in Christ. That it's something that God has miraculously, miraculously done for us, even in spite of ourselves. Because we truly are on a path of destruction and doom. Now, person in this room is not without sin. We all have sinned, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And through that one transgression of Adam and Eve in the garden, it passed sin on to everybody. But through the one man, God-man, Jesus Christ, came the answer, came salvation came the remedy for our sin. But as believers, even though we're free from the the penalty and the power and the presence of sin, sin is still something that is in our lives every day. Each one of us struggles. I was speaking to an individual a couple weeks ago week or so ago, wasn't a believer, was kind of angry at the Lord. And I mentioned to this individual that I need to be more concerned about the sin in my own heart than the sin in your life. And that's what we really need to understand. That we need to be more concerned about what's going on in here rather than what's going on out there in somebody else's life. And as God shows us that, 
it drives us further and further to the cross, to Christ for forgiveness. That's what's so wonderful about John 3.16 and John 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever puts his faith, his trust in him, can be saved. Verse 17 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. See, that's the message of the gospel. The message that people need to understand outside these four walls is we're not here judging them. We have no right to judge anyone. We need to judge our own heart. But We'd love to share the love of God with you. We'd love to share the love of Christ with you. We'd love to tell you the gospel of Jesus Christ, how you can be saved from the condemnation and wrath of God that's, that's, that's on its way if you don't trust in His own Son. And so this is a very real thing in our lives, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Paul's really speaking of of this promise of salvation. That he says, you know what, now, right now in your life, there is no condemnation. Does that mean there's not conviction when you sin as a believer? Sure there is. That's part of the Spirit's job, to convict us when we fall short, when we sin, when we err, when we, when we do what's not appropriate in God's sight. God is there to say, hey, there's something wrong here. You shouldn't be doing this. And sometimes in our flesh, we just continue down that path. But there's always a time when we come to the end of that path and we realize, you know what? We need to make things right. We need to go to God. We need to claim 1 John 1, 1.9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful promise God has given to us in His Word. And you notice, we notice that word no, no condemnation. Not even the, the slightest little hint of condemnation is our lot as believers in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about that word condemnation last week, and we talked about the idea that it relates to a trial. It relates to uh, sentencing for a crime. And it really has the emphasis on the verdict and the punishment. And we talked about how because there's no condemnation, you know what? We'll never have a trial that Christ already stood trial for us. You know what? We'll never have a sentence pronounced to us because he was already sentenced in, on our behalf. And we also said that w- there's no punishment involved because the Bible clearly says that by His stripes we are healed, that He bore the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. That's why there's no condemnation. And it's complete. And it's cleansing of our souls to give us the freedom we need in Christ. Well, today I want to look at verses 2 through 4. And so I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 as we get into our text this morning. Paul 
writes there in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the what? The Spirit. All right, today I want to look at the reason for freedom. Last week we looked at the reality of our freedom. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Well, verse, the end of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2 there speaks to why we have freedom. And if you had to sum it up, you could use one word, justification. And we've gone into that in previous messages, that God is declaring us righteous. That God is declaring us righteous. It speaks of a relationship, first of all, at the end of verse 1 there. It says, who is it that has no condemnation? Who is it that is justified? It's those who are what? In, what's it say? Christ Jesus. That speaks of a relationship. See, we don't serve some ethereal God that's out there in the middle of nowhere, can never be connected to. We serve a God who created us to have a relationship with Him. But because of our sin, because of our fallen nature, that's, that relationship is, is breached. That relationship is broken. And the only way that relationship can be reconciled or healed is through Christ. He is the mediator. He is the one that God has appointed to reconcile us to him. There's nobody else. There's no other name under heaven, the Bible declares, where we must be saved. And I get worried sometimes when I hear teachers of the word of God. I don't even know if I would call them teachers, but people who are in ministry... (laughs) Declaring that, well, you know, I'm sure there's many roads that lead to God. If you're a well-intentioned Muslim, or if you're a well-intentioned Buddhist, or if you're a well-intentioned Mormon, or Jehovah Witness, I'm sure if you, you know, it's, it's all about having that faith, some general faith. I'm sure God's not caught up in name-calling, whether you call him Jesus, or it doesn't matter. Beloved, yes, it does. The Word of God clearly declares that there's there's salvation in no other. See, we need to get our heads out of the sand, and we need to get up on our soapboxes and start declaring the gospel of Christ the way it was meant to be declared. What did John the Baptist say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world when he saw Jesus. He didn't say, oh yeah, he's one, he's one. No, he said, this is it. This is the only way. See, we live in a lost and dying world, and the only way they're going to be free from the penalty of sin is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The last time I checked, Jesus Christ is not out there walking around physically on earth. Now, some people say, oh, you know, I I saw him when I was shaving. You know, he appeared in the mirror. Well, you know, I don't know what, bad pizza the night before or whatever, but I guarantee you it wasn't him. Well, how can you be so sure? Because the Bible tells us where Jesus is right now. Where is he? 
He's seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what the Bible says. So you can see whatever you want. It doesn't change the truth. And we need to be reminded that there's a lost and dying world outside these four walls that need to hear the gospel of Christ. Well, guess what? When we came to Christ, we signed up. We signed up to be a disciple of Christ. We signed up to be an apostle of Christ, one who sent. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for evangelists. It's for believers. And we, we need to start figuring out strategic ways how we can reach this lost world. Because it's not going to happen by carrying a picket sign in front of a Planned Parenthood place. It's not going to happen by boycotting Walmart or boycotting Starbucks. Or, that's not going to work. The only way that people are going to be saved is when Christians... Get up and go out and proclaim and live the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way that it's proclaimed in the New Testament. Don't think you have to dumb it down. Don't think you have to take it and, because it's an offensive message and, and kind of make it feel warm and, and fuzzy. It's not a warm and fuzzy message. The message of the gospel is an offensive message. The message of the cross is an offensive cro- message. You can't get around that. I would say if you're sharing the gospel and it's not offense to the person who's hearing it who's not in Christ, there's something wrong with your message. I mean, the last time I checked, people don't like to be called sinners. I know before I was in Christ, when a pastor said, hey, you know what, you're a sinner. What do you mean I'm a sinner? You don't even know me. He said, I don't have to know you. I said, man, you know, you know my brothers, they're sinners. <laughs> now, I'm not a sinner, you know, compared to them, I'm an angel, come on. And before I was a Christian, I really thought that somehow all the religion, all the altar boy stuff, all the going to mass, all those years somehow made me good. And the Bible says, no, it doesn't. That your works are like filthy rags before a holy God outside of Christ. You can't earn your salvation You can't work your way to heaven. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try to live better and and hopefully God will like you. No, it's not going to work that way. It's going to happen one way. It's in Christ Jesus. It's through the message of the cross. It's through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What are we so afraid about? Why are we so fearful to share the gospel message with people? Well, they may not like us anymore. How do you think they're going to feel when they're burning in hell for all eternity? And they look back and they go, wow, that guy knew Christ. And you know what? He never, he never said anything because maybe he wanted to offend me. We need to start thinking. So we have this relationship with Christ. That gives us the justification. That gives us this, this freedom that we have in Christ. Do we still sin? Yes, but we're justified. Because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The concept of being in Christ is not really an easy one to understand. But I want you to turn with me back to Genesis. All the way back. First couple pages of your Bible. Genesis chapter 6. 
Because there's an illustration here that talks about and speaks exactly, even using some of the same language that we have in Romans. What it means to be in Christ. When we look at Genesis chapter 6, okay, we're only a couple chapters into mankind. I mean, God created it, thought it was great, and then sin entered, and now the wheels fell, fell off the cart. I mean, it's just a bad place to be in history. And it speaks very clearly in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 6, when man began to multiply on the face of Of the land and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. This was something out of the norm. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And the offspring, the Nephilim, were on the earth in these days. And it goes on and it tells you a little bit about them. But it says in verse 5, the Lord saw, what? That the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, don't think these are special people back then. This describes you and I outside of Christ. This describes anyone in the world today who hasn't been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you may put on a good show. You may have a nice family and work hard. And, but you know what? The Bible says the, wicked, the heart is what? Wicked and desperately evil. Who can know it? It's deceptive in nature. And that's what God saw. He saw that the wickedness of man was great. And every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord, verse 6, was sorry that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But, love the buts in in Scripture, but Noah found what? Favor, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God went on and, and basically told him what he needed to do. There was going to be a worldwide flood. Hadn't rained up to this point. Noah had no idea what he was talking about. But you know what? He said he was going to destroy people this way. And you know what? It's up to you to save you and your family. And all the way down in chapter 7, or verse 22 of chapter 6, Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. Everything. Wouldn't you love to say that as a believer? you know what? I'm doing everything that God has commanded me to do. Then the Lord, verse 1, said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you the seven pairs of all clean animals, male and his mate, and a pair, male and female, and a pair of animals that are not clean, male and his and female, the seven pairs of the birds, and so forth, and so on. It goes down. Verse 5, 
And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. He tells him in verse 4 that seven days I will send rain. What's that? Don't worry about it. When's the last time God told you to do something and it made absolutely no sense? Did Noah argue? God, I don't know what rain is. What are you talking about? Why am I building this giant boat? This giant structure? What is it? What's going on here? Nope. He just did it. Noah was 600 years old. Some of your older folks need to look at that. Noah was 600 years old. You know, you don't reach an age in your Christian life where you say, well, now I kind of just retire and and I I don't have to do anything anymore because, well, I've been in church all these years and I've done served the Lord all these years. Now I'm just going to sit back. No, there's no retirement for any Christian at any time. Period. As far as your faith is concerned. As a matter of fact, when you retire from your job, that should motivate you to be more involved in ministry. It frees you up. Here's Noah, 600 years old. The flood waters came. Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark. Why did they go into the ark? It says to escape the waters of the flood. Down in verse 10, after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. When you look at the geological structure of the earth, and geologists are beginning to conclude that, you know what, there was some major catastrophic incident that happened to this earth. And in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. So the water's not only coming down from the sky, it's coming out of the ground. A lot of us in California here would want that right now, right? We would want some rain. I guarantee you, we could have Noah's flood. Water prices would still be high. They'd still want us to ration. That's just the way they are. They put these things into place and they don't take them back out, right? That's how it works. Get, get the hands in our pockets and, okay, we just keep this thing going. Gravy train. Verse 12. And the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, three wives of his sons, with them entered the ark. And every beast according to its kind, so forth. Verse 15, they went into the ark with Noah. Verse 16, and those that entered the ark, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. So they're good. It's raining outside. They got this giant boat that Noah built. Took him quite a while, but he got it done. Didn't understand, but he's doing what God's commanded him to do, thinking God knows best. I don't. I'm just going to trust God through this. Gets his family, gets the animals, everybody in there. And then Noah shut the door. Oh, wait. wait. Doesn't say that, does it? The sons got out and pushed it. No, it doesn't say that either. It says, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. The floodwaters continued 
40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up under the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole earth were covered. And the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all the flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures, that swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land in those in, the, in whose nostrils was the breath of, breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creepy things, birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And you say, why do I tell you this story? Because it speaks very clearly. It's an illustration for us as Christians. What does it mean to be in Christ? It's the same thing as being in the ark. God shut Noah and his family in the ark. And it's interesting, it says that the ark was pitched. Within and without, with pitch, with sap so it wouldn't leak don't want a leaky ark right when you got this giant flood going on that would be a bad thing spends all these years getting everybody inside all this hard work gets in the flood comes well the ark's leaking oh we got problems you don't want any leaks so god had him put pitch inside and out to seal it kind of like caulk you know when you caulk your tile in your bathroom same thing Why do you do that? So the water doesn't run behind there and rot out the the wood on the wall. They use pitch. What's interesting is I was studying that word in Hebrew for pitch is the identical word used elsewhere for atonement. Atonement. So between the, the saved in the ark and the waters of judgment... Was wood and pitch. And only Noah and his family were in the ark. And as I said, it says that the Lord shut him in. What's the point? If you're in Christ, trust me, you are completely secure. There's no leaks in your salvation. That's why we can say there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. God did not say to Noah once the ark was finished. Now, Noah, I want you to go there and and just uh, take eight spikes and drive them on the outside of the timbers of the ark. And you and your family, you just hold on. And as long as you and your family hold on long enough, you'll be saved. Now, if you let go of those spikes and you fall in the water, well, you're, you're gone. Sorry. No, he didn't say that. He placed them inside. He didn't even tell them to hold on. It says that he just shut them in. See, what it means for Noah and his family being in the ark is the exact same thing it means for a believer when he puts his faith and trust in Christ Jesus for his salvation. You're in Christ. You have a relationship with God through Christ. God has placed us in a sphere where his wrath can never reach us. Just like those waters could never reach Noah and his family and the animals. 
God has placed us in a sphere where we are secure. Because it's Christ who makes us that way. There's no more condemnation for sin. We look at the response here in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life hath set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You know, there's a law of sin. When you sin, there's going to be consequences. You don't get away with it. Don't think for a moment that, you know, the sin that you do in your little private area, whatever, and nobody else knows about it, is not affecting anybody. Oh, it is. Because sin does not go unanswered by God. Some form or fashion, He will discipline His children. Unless they repent, unless they turn away from that sin and and claim the forgiveness they have in Christ and once again be filled, controlled by the Spirit of God to live a life that's honoring to Christ and honoring to God. But the response here of this relationship with Christ, it says, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. What is that? It's salvation. It's God coming into your life and saying, you know what? You are free from sin. You're free from condemnation. You're free from the penalty, the power. Eventually, you'll be free from the presence of sin. It's a principle in Scripture. Well, what's the other law there? The law of sin and death. That's the principle of sin. It's the idea that, you know what? If, if you're not in Christ, you're in sin. And if you're steeped in your sin, guess what? In the end, it's not going to work out very well to you, for you. That's why God loved the world. That's why God sent His Son to die in our place for our sin. And we all have sin. The Bible declares that for all have sin and fall short of the glory of God. If you don't believe me, just... Stop and ask yourself a couple questions. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever taken something irrespective of its value that's not yours? Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? Have you ever had a thought that is wrong, that is sinful? We all have. We all have. Because we're sinners. And we need to be reminded of that. See, think of it this way. If I take, let's take my keys, for example. You know, we all believe in the law of gravity, right? So the law of gravity says if I drop these keys, what's going to happen? They're going to fall. Now, I can do this over and over again. And guess what? Every time, they're going to fall. Doesn't matter what I say. Maybe this time they won't. You know, maybe I'll throw it up first. No. What's gravity? It's a principle. It's a law. This cannot be overcome. It's going to continue to do this as long as I do that. What Christ does is this. Wow. Is the law of gravity still there? Yeah. But guess what? Christ is setting us free from the law of sin and death. Just like my hand is setting these keys free from the law of gravity. See, that's what it means, beloved, to be in Christ. That's why the message of the gospel is so important that people understand. There's no hope outside of Christ. None. 
Well, that's the reason for our freedom, justification. Look at verse 3, the route to freedom. It says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. When God gave us the law, it wasn't meant for our salvation. We studied this and we know this. It was meant to show us our need of salvation. That was the purpose of the law. Don't think for a minute God gave us a bunch of do's and don'ts and said, here, if you just do this and you don't do that, then eventually you'll end up in heaven. No. He gave Israel the law to say, basically, look, you're not all you think you are. Try this on for size. And they looked at it and they said, whoa, you know what? We can't really do all this stuff. We'll make our own laws. <laughs> and then we'll start doing things that we feel that we can do. And, and then we'll just feel good about ourselves. But the route to freedom is simply this, substitution. Look at what it says in verse 3. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What did he do? He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and forced sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. What do we call this? Substitution. It's the substitutionary death of Christ. Christ died in our place. And what that means is simply this. God's law demanded a perfect sacrifice. Last time I checked, you look around, nudge your neighbor, are you perfect? No. Okay, there's not a perfect person on the planet. So to answer that dilemma, God said, you know what? I'll have to send someone who is perfect, my own son. And he'll have to give up the glory of heaven and go down and take on a human body all the while remaining God. He was a God-man. And He is the only person who can actually be a sacrifice, be an atonement, be a substitution for all the sins of the world. Because we know that our own efforts aren't going to work. That's what it says at the beginning there. It talks about the futility of man's work. What God has done... The law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. We try and we try. We try to clean up our act and try to turn over a new leaf or whatever. It it never works out. It just doesn't seem to work. We end up with the same old sin, the same old problems. You know, maybe we look a little better or something. But we got issues. And the issues are here in our heart. And you can work from now to the day you die, and you're not going to really be able to remove sin's curse upon you. But it's the finality of Christ's work, and that's what he says in verse 3. For God did something man couldn't do, and he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. It's very important you understand Jesus Christ was perfect. He was not sinful. But if you saw Jesus Christ back in Bible times, you would look at him and he'd look just like you or me. He didn't have some halo around his head, you know, he wasn't glowing and, you know, and he probably didn't look as good as the movies make him out to be. He probably was an unpleasant looking fellow. But the point is, is that he was perfect. He was human, but he was sinless. You mean even when he was little, he never never sinned. Not once. Not once. Or that would make him 
just like every other substitute, right? He, he wouldn't be anything special about Jesus if he had sinned. And that's what drew people to him. Nobody talks like this man. Nobody lives like this man does. No, I mean, there's something about this guy. Hello, yeah, he was God. There sure was something about him. They didn't get it, but that's what the, the fact of the matter was. He was all man, yet all God and completely sinless. And yet when he went to the cross, he died a substitutionary death for everyone who would ever put their faith and trust in him for their sins. If I asked you to sit down and take a piece of paper, you probably need a notepad, at least I would, and start writing down sins that you committed in your life up to this point. There wouldn't be enough time in the day. There wouldn't be enough notepads. I mean, we just keep on, oh yeah, yeah, I did this, I did Christ went on the cross, even though he never committed one of your sins, and he paid for your sin and for my sin. And for all those who would ever put their faith or trust in him for salvation. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without what? Sin. See, the temptation isn't to sin. Getting into the temptation is to sin. Jesus was tempted, and it was an authentic temptation. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 17 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, by the death of Christ, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He was the only one who could. He was the only one who could pay for our sin. And he did that. He did it through the substitutionary death on a cross. The last thing here is the result. What happens as a result of this? Verse 4, it's sanctification. What's sanctification? Sanctification is the process where you're becoming more like Christ. You're becoming holier and holier each and every day. And yes, some days, you know, to be honest, it's two steps forward, three steps back. I get that. But you know what? The idea is, is that hopefully, from the time you've become a Christian till now, whether it's been a week or a day or even, you know, a month or years, you can say, yeah, I'm, I'm different. God is working in me. He's drawing me more and more into his, the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what sanctification is. And that's the result of our being justified. Because he says there that he sent his own son, verse 3, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. That was the condemnation that Christ took for us. So we don't have to be condemned. He paid the price on Calvary. And then it says, here's why. In order, verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, Jesus couldn't say, ah, you know what, you messed up. Eh, take a pass. (laughs) 
Don't worry about the sacrifice thing. Don't worry about anything. You know, I'll just give you a pass. That's not going to work. How would it be if you went before a judge and maybe someone committed a crime against you? Say they stole your car and you're before the judge and the accomplice is there and you're, or the, 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 the criminal's there and you're there. And the judge says, did you steal his car? Yeah, I did it. What did you do with it? Well, we rode it around, just destroyed it, and dumped it in the river. Were you sorry you did it? Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Okay. See you later. Wait a minute. Judge, you're going to let this guy go? He just admitted that he committed this crime. Oh, I know, but, you know, seems like a nice guy. You're free to go. Go. What would you be doing? That's not justice. That's injustice. See, God can't just simply close his eyes to sin, beloved, and say, okay, take another round. Take another try at it. You know, bogey, whatever you call it. I don't know. What, I'm not a golfer, but whatever you call those things. A mulligan. Isn't that what it's called? Mulligan. I knew. I'm searching for the word. Whether you get the do-over, you know. God isn't that way. He, he's got to go by. There's a, there's a system that he's put in place. He can't violate his own law. And so it says here in verse 4 that there's this requirement that has to be met. It can only be met through Christ. It can be fulfilled in us. And then it says this, who walk not according to the flesh. We don't walk according to the flesh, beloved. If you're walking according to the flesh as a believer, you're in sin. As a matter of fact, I would even say that a lot of times when it talks about being in the flesh in the New Testament, it's not talking about Christians. See, this is where we get a little mixed up. We think, well, you know, you can be a Christian and and be in the flesh, be a carnal Christian and do whatever you want. You know, you're still, Jesus is still your savior, but uh, no, that's not the case. Matter of fact, the gospel says just the opposite. The gospel says, if you're going to follow me, Jesus said, what are you going to do? You're going to take up your cross. You're going to die daily to yourself, and then you can follow me. You don't get to do anything you want as a Christian because your sins are forgiven. So you have this free grace, and now you can just go out and do whatever the world does. And boy, you don't have any punishment because God has forgiven you in Christ. No. That's not how it operates. That's not how it works. Because that is walking according to the flesh. But he says, we don't walk according to the flesh. But what do we do? According to the what? The Spirit. Who is in us. See, God's requirements were met, beloved, through the sacrifice of Christ. And now God gives us the resources we need to live this life he's called us to live. Aren't you thankful for that? I mean, aren't you glad that that God didn't just say, okay, you know what? I'm going to save you and all your sins are forgiven. And until the day you die on earth, you're basically on your own. (laughs) Have a nice life. We'd never make it. He gives us the spirit. He gives us the power of the word. He gives us the body of Christ. Why? So we can come together and we can encourage and edify each other. We can be built up. And see, that's the problem with most, most churches today. 
as we come together and we play church, we put the nice little face on and how are you? Oh, praise the Lord, brother. I'm doing wonderful. When you just were in a shouting match with your wife before you walked through the door. You don't think God sees that? You don't think God calls that hypocrisy? See, I want to be in a church where, you know what? If you had a bad day, you can come here and say, you know what? I had a bad day. We're, we're having issues. And everybody's not going to, oh, the pastor's having issues. You know? No, they're going to say, yeah, I had issues last week. Let's compare notes. Maybe we can learn something from each other. Let's, let's be a little more transparent within the body of Christ and a little less judgmental. And maybe we'd be able to do what the Word of God calls us to do in an effective manner to a world that's lost and dying and quickly on its way to hell. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to what? His good pleasure. What he has begun in you, he will complete it. I leave you with a couple questions. Are you in Christ Jesus this morning through faith in his sacrifice, in his blood that was shed for the remission of your sins, for the forgiveness of your sins? If you are, you know what? You can enjoy the assurance that there's now no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. If you're not there, if you have yet to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have yet to see God at work in your life, I pray, I beg you to cry out to him, to plead with him to save you. Because there is a place called hell, and one day outside of Christ, you will be there. Not a nice place. Not going to be a party with all your friends. It says it's utter darkness. There's gnashing of teeth. It's a horrible place. That's why Christ came, to spare you that pain. To pay for your sins. Just cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. The second thing I want to share with you as we close, are you walking according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh? Do you know as a believer, every day, we have the opportunity to yield our lives to a power that's from God directly? That we can rely on His power so that His fruit, singular, can be in our lives? I think so many times Christians think that the fruit of the Spirit is the fruits of the Spirit. Kind of like they can get up in the morning and pick out of the cornucopia of God's fruits which one they want to apply today. Ah, you know, let's see, love, joy. Ah, I'm not feeling too loving. Ah, joy, I'll pick joy today. I'll be joyful today. You can't. It's the fruit. All of those things characterize the life of a believer. We don't have the privilege of picking and choosing which fruit we want to see in our lives. And Christ died and the Spirit gave you new life to set you free from the law of sin and death. I know it's a struggle. It's a hard thing to live the Christian life in a way that honors the Lord. We all struggle with it each and every day because we live in a sinful, fallen world. And we're exposed to sin even beyond our wildest imagination sometimes. 
But I want you to remember three things. That first of all, you are eternally secure in Christ. You are eternally secure in Christ. You are also internally free. For the first time in your life in Christ, you can do the right thing. You can say no to sin and yes to God. And then thirdly, you are positionally perfect in God's eyes. Because he sees you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. What a wonderful promise that is. What a horrible thing to hold on to those promises and keep them to ourselves when there's a world that's lost and dying and in need of this message. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would um, take this word and not only here in, the, in these hearts, but Lord, even online through the radio, Lord, I pray that you would use these words because they're your words. These aren't my words, they're your words. And Lord, that your word has power. And Father, I pray that your spirit would take these words and use them for your glory. If there's anyone here this morning who is yet to trust in Christ for their salvation, for the forgiveness of sin, I pray even now, even now in the quietness of their own heart, that they would, they would cry out to you, that they would say, Lord, please be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me. Help me even in my unbelief. Help, I don't understand how this all works together, but I know that there's a God because all I have to do is look around. And Lord, I pray that you would Save me from my sin. That's a prayer that God will answer. That's a prayer that God will honor. And as believers, I pray we would step out of these seats and out into a lost and dying world with boldness, willing to stand up for the truth of the gospel, not backing down because it's uncomfortable or offensive but Lord, that we would proclaim it loud and clear and that we would also live a message that honors you as well. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.